So, remembering back to the first stanza of the hymn we just sang. Arise, my soul, arise, shake off thy guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne my surety stands, my name is written on his hands. And so... This hymn was picked because we're going to look at the sufficiency of Christ. We've been looking at that as we've been studying the book of Colossians, chapter 2. We're going to return there. So please take out your Bibles and turn to Colossians, chapter 2. The sufficiency of Christ and the attacks against that sufficiency. There is nothing new. Those attacks have been coming since the church was started, and they are coming to us even in this day. Colossians chapter 2, we'll read verses 18 through 23. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you not subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, indeed there have been attacks against the sufficiency of Christ since Christ ascended into heaven. And Lord, as these words were spoken 2,000 years ago, they speak just as loudly now. And just as much as the saints in Colossae needed to hear them, so we too need to hear them. God help us. Help us to hear them, apply them to our lives, that we would be ever vigilant, ever aware, ever ready for the ongoing assault on the sufficiency and the finished work of Jesus Christ. For in Christ and in Christ alone do we find our complete and total salvation. For it is through him we pray and give you thanks. Amen. And so I've titled this message, The Pressure of Legalism. The Pressure of Legalism. And as I said, we've been looking at the sufficiency of Christ and the attacks that were coming upon that in the Colossi church. And Paul, who is in captivity in Rome, received uh, these words, and he's writing back to them, warning them, encouraging them to be on guard. And so we, as a result, are blessed to have these warnings because, as I said, these things apply to us just as much as they do to the saints in Colossae. And we found in Colossians chapter 2, just a few verses ago, verse 3, It's more or less summed up. Paul says, in Christ are hidden 
all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Not one treasure, not a few, not many, all. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so we have to remember the attacks that were coming upon the church at Colossae. There were the Gnostics and their secret knowledge. See, you could have Christ, that was wonderful, they would say, but you, you, you need our secret knowledge. You need to be freed from this, this body in which you live, because they said everything physical, everything material, was evil. And so the, the spirit inside man had to be set free, and they had ways of doing that, but you needed their knowledge. That was one attack. Another attack was from the Judaizers, and they said, you have Christ, that's great, that's wonderful, but have you read the Old Testament? It says you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the old Mosaic laws. You need to be circumcised. And so if you were a young Christian, you came out of paganism, or perhaps you came out of Judaism, you've embraced the sufficiency of Christ, you're rejoicing in Christ, imagine the confusion, imagine the pressure that would weigh upon you as the gentleman sitting in the pew next to you, as it were, would lean over and say, oh, that's, that's wonderful you have Christ, but are you also circumcised? Or, or do you have the secret knowledge? That would put a tremendous amount of pressure on you. And so Paul writes, and he writes in verse 10, these simple words, you are complete in him. You're complete in Christ. Christ's finished work is complete. And if you are in Christ by faith and by faith alone, you are complete in Christ. You need nothing more. Now, last time we looked at verses 16 and 17, and we'll just read through that quickly. Paul says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. So in other words, you don't need Christ plus fill in the blank. Whatever the guy sitting next to you says you need. If he says Christ is great, that's wonderful, but you also need whatever, then that should be condemned. Adding to Christ is compromising the gospel. Now, in our day and age, in our culture, this, this is a great encouragement, I think, because, as I said, we may not be dealing with, uh, with Gnostics, we may not be dealing with Judaizers, but we certainly have our own battles, and we have our own pressures. And there is, as there has always been, an onslaught on the sufficiency of Christ. You want to have Christ, that's wonderful, but you also need to add, and our culture says... You need to add, oh, I don't know, maybe a, a rainbow flag out in the front. Maybe, maybe a few rainbow flags around the front or, or a sign that says, we love everyone, a place for all people. Maybe you need to add to your worship service some, uh, some, some messages about how accepting you are. Uh, maybe you need to add to, to what you do at church, uh, maybe some, some gay marriages Maybe you need to add some, some messages about how you are understanding and how you, how you want to bless and encourage uh, those who might be struggling with, with 
the idea of abortion, and maybe they're wrestling with it, and and you need to understand from where they're coming, and you need to embrace them where they are, and those things, those pressures are upon us, and they're mounting, and we need to be aware of that, and we need to be encouraged to stand against those things. Our culture says, you need to be more relevant. You need to be more palatable to us. And as we have seen, I mean, you don't have to drive very far from from where we are. You can just go up or down the street. It won't take long before you will pass a church that has compromised on those things. They have uh, bent the knee and have been more than happy to to add those things to who they are. Christ? Oh, absolutely. But who is Christ? And, and what has he truly done? And we, we need to bring into our church services all of these worldly things. And so, like I said, we don't have the Gnostics anymore. We don't have Judaizers amongst us anymore. But we certainly do have YouTube influencers, don't we? I mean, it's not hard to find heresy. Uh, like I said last time, you want to find heresy, just, just take out your cell phone. It's very easy. Turn on YouTube. It's not hard. Self-help gurus. They're everywhere. Everybody's an expert. Everybody knows what they're talking about. And they're on uh, YouTube, and they're very happy to, uh, to tell you how much they know. False religions. They've always been here. And, of course, the cults. Those wonderful, nice, well-dressed people who sit out in front of libraries and they have their watchtowers and uh, awake magazines. Oh, they want to talk to you. And they are... So friendly. Or how about those young men that ride around on their bikes, even in the dead heat of summer, wearing white shirts and black ties, black slacks? They're very nice, very nice young men. Clean cut. Wonderful. But it's what they bring that is the problem. And so we have to be on guard against these things. And so Paul, in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, we read the following. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And so, again, circumcision, you can take that out. Put in any attempt, any means that someone wants to try and use to justify themselves. Anything that they want to try and add to the gospel would be equally condemned by the apostle. His argument is easy and it's clear. You want to keep part of the law, this part over here or that part over there, Guess what? You can't do that. You want to try and keep the law so as to be made righteous? Well, then you have to keep the whole law. And of course, anybody who has been convicted of his sins or her sins, we know that we are lawbreakers and we cannot keep the law. Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. 
Again, the Apostle Paul writes this, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So there you go, verse 4. If you want to work, your wages are not going to be counted as grace. You want to work your way to heaven? Guess what? That's debt. It's not helping you. It's hindering you. It's working against you. But isn't it interesting that in us is this innate desire to try and add something, some aspect, some little nugget to the gospel? But of course, if you do that on any level, would you not have something to boast about in heaven? If there is anything that you do that makes you different from somebody else, when you get to heaven, would you not be able to say, <laughs> guys, I'm, I'm here because I did this one thing. Uh, those, those people down there in hell under God's wrath, they didn't. I did. So ultimately, I'm here because of that thing. No, that's, that's boasting. We would have something to boast about. Even if it's some small attempt, we would have something to boast about. But what does the apostle say? If Abraham was justified by works, he would have had something to boast about, but not before God. But that brings up the question of all of the various sundry things that we do as Christians. Even good things, wonderful things, profitable things, like... Theology, studying theology, knowing theology. Is there anything wrong with that? Being dedicated to study and and learning and understanding more. Could that be a problem? Well, J.I. Packer in his classic work, Knowing God, writes this. If we pursue theological knowledge for its own sake, it is bound to go bad on us. It will make us proud conceited. The very greatness of the subject matter will intoxicate us, and we shall come to think of ourselves as a cut above other Christians because of our interest in it and grasp of it. And we shall look down on those whose theological ideas seem to us crude and inadequate and dismiss them as very poor specimens. He goes on, To be preoccupied with getting theological knowledge as an end in itself, to approach Bible study with no higher a motive than that, than to desire to know all the answers, is the direct route to a state of self-satisfied self-deception. Now, of course, the reason I bring this up is this this hits this hits close to home. We're we're Calvinists here. We we love to read. Many of us love to read. Some of you I know have wonderful, beautiful libraries at home. I am very blessed to have the library that I have. Reading is a blessing. Learning from people is a wonderful blessing. And of course, as Reformed folk, we love to read old dead guys. That's one of our great blessings is we we love to read old dead guys. But one of our big struggles is that we love to read old dead guys. And the problem that comes out of that is that we can get caught up in trying to outquote one another. Well, have you read 
Calvin on this. Well, yes, I have. Okay, well, did you ever read Luther on this? And Yes, but did you ever hear the quote of him over here? And all of a sudden, we start having dueling quotes. And no longer is there this desire to learn more so as to grow ever more close to God, to learn the, the depths and the richness of the sufficiency of Christ. What we start doing is we simply learn for the sake of learning, that we might be able to outquote somebody or go out and, and be able to outduel somebody who also knows some theology. For us, we need to be on guard against these things. It's about externals. Okay? We can look so holy, so good, and, and we can come here and, and sit in the pews and, and uh, do all the things that we're supposed to do, but where is our heart? What is our motive? You can't tell us a lot of times by looking at externals alone. Externals can hide a lot. And sometimes we can become very good at hiding those things. And of course, uh, of course uh, uh, cults and false religions, that's what they're based on. They're based on externals. Like I said, look at the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. They're just wonderful people, very nice, very sweet. It's all about externals. And that's the entire uh, hook they try to get you in is by externals. Look at how conservative we are. Look at how wonderful we are. Look at how sweet we are. Look at how loving we are. It's all about externals. And of course, if you look and study uh, church history, you will see that throughout a a long period of time in the early church, uh, uh, the monastic life was, was huge. And out of that came monasteries, which endure to this day in the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, it's all about externals there. There, they're trying to close out externals. All of the things that might lure me away, I want to, uh, to be able to create the externals that I want for myself. I want to eliminate anything that might draw me away. And so I will sequester myself. I will uh, live inside of this home with others. And in some cases, in some religions, they will go even off on their own so that no one can distract me. No one can take me away. And of course... The immediate answer is, or the immediate question rather is, does this do any good? Does this do any good? You go live in a monastery, you are now uh, set free from uh, supposedly all of the uh, various sundry things that might lure you away in our culture. And, and there's no question, our culture is decadent. Our culture is, is full of things that uh, want to draw us away from Christ. So you go live in a building somewhere where you no longer have access to any of that. You no longer have much, if any, uh, uh, interaction with, with the outside world. You have a small group of people that you interact with. Does that change anything? Well, I think if Martin Luther would, was here, he would say absolutely not. As many of you know, Martin Luther, he was a, a monk before he came to faith in Christ. And he famously would spend up to four hours in the confessional. Uh, on any, any given day, confessing his sins. He was a monk. He lived in a monastery, four hours straight of confessing sins. He knew, he was very much aware that just because of the external control of his, his body, it didn't touch his heart. He knew what was going on on the inside was not pleasing to God, even though outwardly he looked wonderful. 
And so there has always been an attempt to try and control the outward. But of course, the gospel is all about changing the inward. And then from that, is there a change to the outward? But that doesn't stop people from giving us the list. The list, the do's and the don'ts. You have Christ, that's wonderful, but you need the list. The list of you can go here, that's a good place to go, but don't, don't go over here because, you know, Christians don't go to that place. You can, you can uh, read this book, but don't go to that movie because movies are bad. You can uh, drink these things, but you can't drink these things because Christians just don't do that. And so they give you this list of do's and don'ts. Christianity is more than just a, a box that you need to check. It's not about checking boxes. You do this, you don't do that. You do this, you don't do that. No, no, it's much more than that. And so that brings us to our text in verse 18. Paul says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And so we'll look at that verse for a few moments. He says, let no one cheat you. Literally, let no one step in and judge you or, or decide against you. Let no one step in and, and make the decision against you. Why? Could you lose your salvation? I mean, if you are a blood-bought saint of Christ, you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you are depending solely upon him for your salvation. What's to worry? I mean, you can't lose your salvation. It's founded in the finished work of Christ. So what's the big deal? This guy comes and he sits down next to you and he wants to tell you to, well, just add this one thing over here. Add that one thing over there. Where's the, what do you have to worry about? What's the big deal? Well, he says you could lose your reward. I mean, think about it. We've talked about this, I think, uh, before. We have a finite amount of days on this earth. We have a relatively short window to serve the Lord. Just a few years, really. If we spend some of that time, perhaps much of that time, caught up in things that lead us away from Christ, do you think that you've lost some reward? All of the time, all of the years that could have been used in service to Christ. All of the things that you could have done for the glory and honor of God. Instead, now you're caught up in things that take you away from that. And some of us... Some of you out there might have come from false teaching systems and you understand how hard it is to leave and the baggage that you carry with you when you do leave. It's hard to disconnect from false teaching sometimes. And sometimes that baggage will remain with you for the rest of your life. So there is something that we need to be on guard against. And Paul tells us, do not do this. Flee it, lest you lose your reward. And who is this man, this false teacher, this legalist? Well, he's a man who delights in false humility. Now, the word false there is supplied by the New King James translation. Literally, it says he delights in humility. And that's a humorous statement when you think about it. If you delight in humility, are you humble? It's like the joke, oh, brother so-and-so, he's the most humble man in all the church. Just ask him. He'll tell you. No, obviously, if you are truly humble, 
You're broken. You're contrite. You think lowly of yourself. You're, 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 you're not exalting yourself. You're not exalting yourself. You're not delighting in yourself. But this man was. And I believe if Christ spoke on this, he would call this man a hypocrite. Because in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 5 through 6, we read this. Jesus said, when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street, that they may be seen by men. And that's the key. They do it so that they can be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. See, that's the reward that you will get if you pray, if you minister, if you do the things, if you keep the list, whatever the legalist wants you to do. Oh, you'll get his praise. You'll get the pats on the back. You'll get all of the uh, attaboys. That's the only reward you'll get. Verse 6, Jesus says, but you... When you pray, go into your room, and when you shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now that's true humility. You do it in secret. So back to verse 18 of Colossians 2. This legalist, this false teacher, he takes delights in false humility and the worship of angels. Now, what is this? Well, probably, possibly a reference to uh, what we looked at a few weeks ago, verse 9 of chapter 2. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Literally, in Christ dwells all the pleroma. What is that? If you'll remember, the Gnostics had this system. They needed this system because in their system... God, who was way up here, was so pure, so good, he could never, ever touch or form or create sinful matter. That was an essential part of their religion. Everything you can see, touch, smell, feel, that's, that's sinful, that's bad. And so the good God couldn't possibly have created all of that. So the Gnostics needed this elaborate system of, of beings, these spirit beings that they called the pleroma, the fullness in order to isolate their God from the demiurge down here that would create everything. And of course, in the verse we just read, in verse 9, in Christ dwells all that fullness. In other words, you don't need what the Gnostics are saying. You don't need that system. Christ is sufficient. He created everything. And so that could be what he's referring to here, the worship of angels. In other words, this man, this legalist, this false teacher... He worshipped all of those beings, all of those angelic hosts, from the God up here all the way down to the Demiurge that would create. He believes that he needed all of those, and he would worship all of those. And of course, Paul says, no, you worship God. The Apostle John learned this the hard way. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 8 through 9, of course, Revelation chapter 22, John is seeing the glories of heaven, the wrapping up of all of history, he's seeing uh, things that are, are beyond comprehension, and he's trying to grasp it all. And then we read verse 8, he says, Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Uh-oh. Verse 9, 
Then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren, and the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Angel says, Don't worship me. I'm just a creature like you. Worship God. And so we have that clearly commanded. We give our worship to no one, to nothing except God alone. Anyone who comes and tries to draw you away into worshiping anything, anyone other than the only true and the living God, you are to flee that person. Verse 18. Again, it's these legalists delight in false humility. He worships angels and he likes to intrude into those things which he has not seen. The word not there, he has not seen, not is not in the better manuscripts. Literally, the best reading probably is he intrudes into those things which he has seen. Well, what is this? Probably the same thing that we see today. He had visions. He saw things. He had spiritual experiences, things that you needed to listen to, things that you needed to hear. He has insights that you need to hear. If this man were alive today, he'd definitely be on YouTube. He would have some kind of ministry where he would be telling you all about how he was taken to heaven or how he had uh, this conversation with the Holy Spirit or, or how Christ appeared to him over here. I mean, that's how Mormonism was founded. Joseph Smith had visions of God the Father and God the Son. Nothing has changed. Paul says, this man is to be fleed. But imagine, again, you're a new Christian. You're come to, you've come to faith in Christ. You came out of paganism. You're sitting in the church in Colossae, and this man tells you these things. Would that not be incredibly confusing? Would that not be a tremendous struggle? I think it would be. It's easy for us to say, oh, you know, just, just tell a guy to take a hike. We know better. Well, imagine in first century Colossae, all of this stuff is coming to you and it's brand new. You have to try and understand all of this. You have to sort it all out. This would be a tremendous struggle. And then Paul says of this false teacher, he is vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. There's the motivation. That's the motivation. It's pride. It's pride. He's puffed up by his fleshly mind. It's all about him. He wants to tell you about all of these experiences. He wants to give you his list of do's and don'ts. He wants to tell you all this stuff and trying to get you to follow him because it's pride. It feeds his pride. Could also be, uh, in addition to that, a reference to the Gnostics. He is vainly puffed up by his what? Fleshly mind. And what did the Gnostics believe? Everything that is flesh is evil. So perhaps Paul is simply saying, he says everything, is, everything that is flesh is, is evil. Well, guess what? Everything that he is doing is motivated by his fleshly mind. Verse 19. Speaking of this man, this false teacher, he is not holding fast to the head, that is Christ, from whom all the body Nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. His focus isn't on Christ. That's how you recognize him. It's on stuff. 
It's on experiences. It's not on the finished work of Christ. It's on external performance and external experience. We, by contrast, are to focus on Christ. It's all in Christ. The hymns we sang this morning are about Christ, about the finished and completed work of Christ, about his sufficiency. He is the head. And as the head, we are nourished and we will grow and increase because that is from God, Paul says. Verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Why, Paul says, you died to the basic principles of the world. If you're a Christian, you've died to all of this. What are the basic principles of the world? We've looked at this before. Go way back. Way, way back. Go way back to the book of Genesis. We read from it when, uh, when uh, we started the service this morning. Adam and Eve, in the garden, everything was perfect. Everything was beautiful. Every need they had was taken care of. But of course... They needed just that one more thing. That one thing added to the sufficiency of God. Satan tempted them. Oh, you see, you just need this one more thing. See, and God knows this. God hasn't told you the truth. You need this one more thing. Just this fruit. Bite of it, and you'll understand everything. You'll be like God. And, of course, they did. And ever since then, that's what man has been doing, trying to to get to God or trying to be God himself on his own, in his own way, apart from God. And so man has his lists. You have Christ, that's great, but you need to add to it. You've got to have some of you in on that. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. You need the list, not discernment, not the leading of the Holy Spirit. You need my list. Let me give you my list. It's the list I live by. You need to live by it too. The list will get you closer to God. That's how they sell it to you. And of course, as we've talked about, it doesn't get you closer to God. It takes you further from God. So where is the balance? And we have to be aware of this because obviously the Christian life is about denying ourselves, right? Sanctification, growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. As you grow closer to Christ, you will be more like him. You will walk in obedience, which, of course, means you deny yourself of various sundry things. Well, verse 23, Paul says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They have an appearance of wisdom. And we see this in 1 Corinthians. We're supposed to, to deny ourselves, as I said, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Verses 19 through 20, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. A few chapters later, in chapter 9 of the same letter, Paul says, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection 
lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And then the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he begs Christians to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And so, we have to deny ourselves. There's no doubt about it. But this doesn't give us the right, as we have been reading, doesn't give us the right to jump into the, the pool of debauchery and swim around in, in sin and, and uh, fleshly indulgence. No. We don't get to just do whatever we want and sin and sin and sin. This isn't a license to sin. We are to deny ourselves. So what's the difference? Why is what this, this legalist, why is what he is saying wrong? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, it's self-imposed, Paul says. It's self-imposed. It didn't come from God. Secondly, it came from a false humility motivated by pride. We've seen that. And then lastly, Paul says that it's the neglect of the body. Aphidia is the word in Greek. It means severe treatment. Unsurpassing treatment of the body. This is asceticism. The severe discipline of the body, the severe, in some cases, mistreatment of the body, denying the body various sundry things that the body might need. And again, all religion, but certainly, sadly, the uh, church history has a long history of this, where uh, people thinking that they're getting closer to God, they're, they're going to be more holy, they deny themselves of some of the blessings that God has given us. Blessings such as cleanliness. There have been people famous. They didn't clean themselves because that would, uh, that they would have to deny uh, the fl- they were denying the flesh, so they wouldn't clean themselves. They denied themselves companionship. They would go off and live by themselves or, or live in a, a small group. They would deny physical intimacy in marriage or marriage altogether. And, of course, they would deny themselves food and drink, warmth, clothing, all forms of comfort. And in the more extreme cases, they would uh, beat their bodies, mutilate their bodies, trying desperately to bring their bodies into subjection, trying to control the externals. And in some cases, they would take vows of silence. They would no longer speak. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But where does it come from? Is it the mouth that is the problem? No, it's the abundance of the heart. Evil things come out because there's evil on the inside. Mr. Callahan, this morning in um, Sunday school, teaching through Revelation, and how will Christians be known in those last days? By their outward appearance? By... By uh, some mark on them? No, it's by how they act. It's how they live. How will they be known? Same way we're known now. By how we live. We live for the honor and glory of Christ. Not by keeping some kind of external list 
but because our hearts have been changed and we delight, we joyfully sacrifice ourselves to God in humble service. So if you are addressing the outward, if you're addressing externals, you're not getting to the root cause. You're not getting to the heart. And Paul says this in verse 23 at the very end. He says, these attempts are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Whatever this man is selling, whatever this man is trying to convince you to embrace, whatever things he's trying to get you to add on to the gospel, they, will, uh, they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So flee them. Our brother uh, Sean Cornell this morning in the opening read from Proverbs chapter 4. He read this, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. It's about the heart not about the externals. It's the heart that needs the change. So to sum up, Paul warns the Colossians not to add anything to the sufficiency of Christ. And we need to be on guard about that as well. And it can be so tempting, sometimes so so hard to identify, but we need to always, always be on guard. Christ and nothing more. Christ and his sufficiency is what I'm doing leading me to an ever-growing, ever-more humble, ever-more-dependent relationship with Christ? Am I growing in my understanding of Christ? Am I uh, looking all the more to exalt Christ? Am I depending all the more on the sufficiency of Christ? If you are not sure, or if you think the answer to that is no, then the path that you're on is a dangerous one. So, what is the solution? Well, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul tells us that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what guides us, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. The decisions that we make, the obedience that we live out from the Holy Spirit. Okay, great. That's wonderful. How, do we, how does that work? How do we obtain that? Well, you received the Holy Spirit when you became a believer, but how does one get filled? Well, Paul tells us in Colossians, and we'll, we'll cover this uh, in a short while uh, in a future sermon, but he says in verse 16, chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. It's the same thing. It's the same thing for Paul. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Well, how can the word of Christ dwell in you richly unless you've read it? You have to read your Bibles. You have to be students of your Bible. Get in the Word. Know the Word. Love the Word. Pray over the Word. Meditate upon the Word. Memorize the Word. Know the Word. And then, out of a sense of brokenness and humility, you seek to live out what you've learned from the Word. Theology is great. It's wonderful. But it should drive you into a deeper, more intensive study of the Word of God. So we must flee anything. Anything that takes us away from the beauty, from the simplicity, and from the sufficiency of Christ. Let us be on guard. Amen? Let's pray. Our glorious God and Father, we thank you for this warning. Might we heed it? Might we be ever vigilant for legalism and asceticism still abounds to this day? God, help us. Help us to, uh, to be ever watchful. And in everything we do, always, always 
looking to grow in our understanding of Christ. That will break our hearts all the more. That will make us all the more thankful. It will humble us all the more as we depend all the more on the sufficiency and the finished work of Jesus Christ. But we can only lay hold of that by faith alone. We must believe, and we must believe with our whole heart. Oh, dear God, if there is anybody here today that has not put his trust or her trust in you, if there is anybody here today who is not leaning wholly upon Christ and upon Christ alone, Lord, might their hearts be greatly troubled. Trouble their hearts, Lord. May they get no rest until they have come before you, brokenhearted, crying out, Oh God, save me, save me. To that end, we pray, O God, and we give you thanks. And we pray, Lord, that you would bless us as we part ways. Prepare us for tonight's uh, service. We give you thanks for it through Jesus Christ. Amen.